The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. So it's always a challenge to figure out what to reflect on sitting in this seat, which feels a little intimidating. So I like to sit down so I'm closer to you. Uh, and I understand that Shelley and others have been talking about loving kindness and the other Brahma Viharas on Wednesday night for the last several weeks. So I thought I would kind of continue in that vein and I'm going to talk a little bit about forgiveness. So they always say you teach what you need. And I uh, am continuing to learn about forgiveness. So I, I look forward to learning from you. There'll be some opportunity to talk about that at the end. So what I was thinking about forgiveness, I was thinking about how it's um, what are called the far enemies of the Brahma Viharas. First of all, does the word Brahma Vihara mean something to you? Is there anyone? Raise your hand if you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, thank you. So there's a tendency to throw out a lot of stuff that nobody knows what you're talking about in places like this, so I'm going to try not to do that. So there, just very briefly, you can think of the practices of Buddhism as kind of falling into two camps. There's those that are said to cultivate wisdom or insight into how things are. And those are things like meditation, right, where we're noticing what's happening internally and maybe externally. And out of that, we begin to gain some understanding of the way things are. In Buddhism, they would be things like impermanence and the lack of a permanent self and all that. I'm not going to go into that. The other kind of classification or group of practices that you find in Buddhism are what are called kind of the more of the heart practices. And they are practices that are designed to cultivate uh, a caring heart, compassion, appreciative joy by which we can appreciate other people's well-being. And the last one is equanimity. And it's said that the two need to go together. Wisdom without the Brahma-viharas or these four heart practices is sterile. It lacks love. And the Brahma-viharas or the heart practices can get a little out of whack, a little overboard, or we can feel overwhelmed or whatever without, without wisdom. So the two are very important. And each of the Brahma Viharas, which translates as the abodes of the gods, or the qualities of the awakened heart, we all have these qualities within us, love and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. And these are the qualities that, of a Buddha and of anyone who, who is awake. And each of them has what's called a far enemy, or something that looks like it. Well, actually, that's the near enemy. It looks like it, but it isn't actually. And then there's the far enemy, which is the opposite of. So loving kindness, the first of the Brahma Viharas, the, the far enemy, or the thing that's the opposite of that quality, is ill will. Compassion which is the second of the Brahma-viharas, the opposite of compassion is cruelty. You can kind of see how this works. Um, The third one, which is appreciative joy or appreciating 
other people's happiness. The opposite is said to be resentment, or you could think of it as jealousy or envy. Instead of enjoying other people's happiness, we're envious. And the far enemy or the opposite of um, equanimity or a balance is being out of balance or clinging to a particular outcome, wanting things to go a certain way and not being able to just sit in the way it is. So what's interesting to me is that those opposites of these qualities of heart are all aspects of non-forgiveness. So when we're not able to forgive, we can often feel ill will or we can feel resentment or we're really wanting a different outcome. Uh, cruelty maybe is more of a stretch, but it could be there. So, so it seems like forgiveness is something that is foundational to all of these other qualities, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And there is actually a formal way to practice it, uh, which is often practiced as part of the, the loving kindness practice. I'm not going to talk so much about that, but it seems to be embedded in all of them. And forgiveness, you can think of as being the opposite of what the Buddha described uh, as um, as non-clinging. So clinging in the teachings is the root of all suffering. Wanting Wanting stuff, wanting stuff to be different, wanting things to... Uh, be the same, because everything changes. And this clinging can be clinging to material objects. We want more stuff, or we want the stuff we've got. Or it can be clinging to views. We want things to be a certain way, and if they're not that way, we don't agree with it. Or we have a view about ourselves, or a view that there is a self. So, So clinging causes suffering. We want things to be stay the same or we want them to be different. That's kind of the opposite, the reverse of clinging. And this clinging is, um, is strengthened by the stories that we tell, especially when it comes to, if we're clinging to resentment, it's strengthened by all the stories that we've got in our mind about how we were wronged, and that shouldn't have happened. Is anybody familiar with these kinds of stories? <laughs> I have a lot of them in my mind. And it can feel really awful, for me anyways, to be caught in these stories of how it shouldn't have happened that way and that that person did this to me and whatever, whatever the nature of our story is. If this isn't suffering, I don't know what it is um, because for me it's very, very painful. So far, is this making sense? Okay. So Anne Lamott, the great novelist, uh, wrote a book called Crooked Little Heart, and she describes it like this. Holding on to resentment is like eating rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. (laughs) And the Buddha said 2,600 years ago something very similar. He used an equally powerful metaphor Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else and burning yourself. So a similar idea. We're actually 
when we hold on to our resentments. Oh, there's a little bug on my paper. Ah. I moved to take it outside, but I think, where can I put it? I'll put it there. Um, something I brought from home, probably. Um, a, a similar idea that it, resentment is actually hurting us more than it's hurting anyone else. So in the Bala Pandita Sutta, a sutta is like a sermon or a teaching, uh, which translates as fools and wise people. The Buddha said, monks, these two are fools. Which two? The one who doesn't see his transgression as a transgression, and the one who doesn't rightfully pardon another who has confessed his transgression. These two are fools. These two are wise people. Which two? The one who sees his transgressions as a transgression, and the one who rightfully pardons another who has confessed his transgression. These two are wise people. So he's making the distinction between the wise and the fools. So most of us have probably experienced the pain of holding on to resentments. Is there anybody here who hasn't experienced that pain? You ought to be up here if you're... (laughs) Anybody? Okay. So I certainly have, and I'm sitting up here. So so we all experience this, unless we're completely awake, I guess. And yet many of us, and that includes myself, uh, might struggle with letting them go. So why is that? So um, I'm going to quote somebody named Fred Luskin. Anybody know Fred? Fred is a psychologist at Stanford, and he's also a longtime meditator. And uh, Dr. Luskin has made his life work the study of forgiveness. And he has an explanation for why he thinks forgiveness is so difficult based on his research. He says that one of the reasons we hold on to resentments is because we don't like being reminded of our vulnerability, of our fragile human existence, and the potential for being hurt at any time. It's an interesting idea. So this is a quote from him. Every single moment our vulnerability exists. When our vulnerability is triggered, we notice the event that triggered it and attach ourselves dramatically to that event. It becomes the event that has to be managed rather than an acknowledgement of our vulnerability. We react to our, par- our partner, our parents, or whomever hurt us as though they were the agents of our vulnerability. But they are not the essential problem. The essential problem of our, our vulnerability is what it means to be a human being who can be hurt at any time and whose existence is tenuous. I think that's a very interesting idea. We're defending ourselves against this vulnerability by holding resentment. 
So to put it in the language of Buddhism, we blame other people for reminding us of the truth of being human, that everything changes, that all conditioned phenomena are ultimately unsatisfactory, and that there is no permanent self. So forgiveness then would start with accepting the truth of the way things are. Or as Luskin puts it, making peace with the no's in our lives. The no of not getting what we want, the no of losing those we love, the no of not getting things our way. It starts with accepting that these no's, this suffering, this vulnerability is a part of being human. The details may vary, but the experience is universal. We all experience these things. We're all vulnerable. We all suffer. We've all been hurt, and we've all hurt others. It's going to happen. It's part of the human condition. So acknowledging this, however scary and painful that may be, with a hearty dose of self-compassion, can, in my experience, make it a little easier to bear, a little less isolating to understand that this is part of the human condition. We are all hurt. We are all vulnerable. We all hurt others. And this is the way it is. It's not personal to us necessarily. The conditions will vary and the experiences will vary, but it is, it is shared. So I would like to offer a few additional things that um, I like to keep in mind when I can when I'm undertaking the challenge of forgiveness. And some of these are mine and some of them come from something called there's another word, the Vasudhi Magga, which is uh, the Vasudhi Magga is a compilation of practices and teachings that was compiled in the 5th century CE, so quite a while after the Buddha's death. And uh, they were compiled in Sri Lanka, and they're a very important part of this tradition. Um, so some of them, some of these Ideas come from the Vasudhi Magga, and some of them are mine. And so um, I just offer them in the spirit of mm, generosity, I guess. Um, and I would invite you to just listen with some discernment, see which ones resonate with you, which ones don't. And... Um, And then at the end, I look forward to hearing your reactions and your reflections and anything you would add to this list. So um, so I'll just head on in, and here we go. So the first thing that to keep in mind when you're thinking about forgiveness is to remember that forgiving someone doesn't mean that you have to have a relationship with them. It's really an inside job. So Tanisara Bhikkhu, so he's a contemporary monk in this tradition, and he writes a lot, and he translates stuff. 
And he has an essay that's called Reconciliation, Right and Wrong. And he points out that the Buddha made, made a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. So he, uh, since he's a scholar, he knows the, what the actual words meant in the language that the teachings were first delivered. Uh, not delivered, actually written down and transmitted orally. Um, and he says that the word for forgiveness in that language actually means earth. So that when you forgive someone, it means that you have a mind like the earth, a mind that is non-reactive and unperturbed. So you don't actually have to like the other person. It's not a requirement. You just need to come with this, I can think of it as a mind filled with equanimity, a mind that's grounded, that's unperturbed, and that's willing to let go of this burden of carrying around these resentments. But it doesn't mean that you actually have to like the other person or have a relationship with them at all. Reconciliation, on the other hand, in the original teaching, means to have a relationship, a a friendly relationship with the other. And having a friendly relationship, I think you might all agree, requires a certain level of trust. It's It's a trust that's built on mutual respect. And oftentimes we can't trust someone who's hurt us. We might learn to forgive them, but we may not ever trust them. So this is what Tanisara Bhikkhu said about that. If I deny responsibility for my actions or maintain that I did no wrong, there's no way we can be reconciled. Similarly, if I insist that your feelings don't matter or that you have no right to hold me to your standards of right and wrong, you don't trust me to not hurt you again. To regain trust, I have to show my respect for you and for our mutual standards of what is and is not acceptable behavior. To admit that I hurt you and I was wrong to do so and to promise to exercise restraint in the future. At the same time, you have to inspire trust too in the respectful way you conduct the process of reconciliation. The Buddha admitted that not all disputes can be reconciled. So this is interesting because in a lot of Christian traditions, as far as I understand it, reconciliation is is an important thing. And um, actually, Martin Luther King Jr. talks a lot about that, the importance of not only forgiveness, but reconciliation. But the Buddha didn't, didn't, uh, didn't feel that that was always possible. There are times when one or both parties are unwilling to exercise the honesty and restraint that true reconciliation requires. Even then, though, forgiveness is still an option. This is why the distinction between reconciliation and forgiveness is so important. It encourages us not to settle for mere forgiveness when the genuine healing of reconciliation is possible. And it allows us to be generous with our forgiveness even when it is not. So I like that. It kind of, um, it gives permission to do what we can do and to not feel that we really have to have a relationship or reconcile when the trust is not available. 
So the second thing that can be helpful when contemplating forgiveness is to accentuate the positive. So think, if you can, uh, about something positive that the other person, the person who might have hurt you, uh, has done. And this is what uh, Buddha Gosa, who was the compiler of the Vasudhi Magga, this is what he called removing irritation. <laughs> so it's, you know, kind of in a practical way, it's hard to think mean, something mean about someone when you're also thinking about what a good caretaker this person is of their dog. You can't entertain both thoughts at once. That's not to say one can't come after the other, but in the moment you can't think both. So if you try to turn your attention and think as best you can of something positive that this person who has hurt you has done, that that goes a short distance anyway in mitigating some of the um, the hostile feelings we might have towards the other. And I I was going to say, I don't know if this is true, I don't think there's a person alive or anyone who has lived who didn't do something positive. Would you agree? Can you think of anyone who who hasn't? (laughs) I don't know. Ponder that. Let me know. Okay, so the third... The third thing you might want to consider is to um, to really spend some time acknowledging the pain that's been caused you. To really feel the pain of being hurt or betrayed or whatever it was. And to practice self-compassion for yourself just because it's so painful. I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes that forgiveness involves uh, kind of an, um, a bypass of that. John Wellwood, the psychologist, coined the term spiritual bypassing. Maybe you're familiar with that. But spiritual bypassing means using spiritual practices to avoid doing our own work, our own psychological, emotional, developmental work. So we, and I, this is common here as I'm sure it is in other spiritual traditions, people will meditate or develop deep concentration so they don't have to feel what they're feeling. But that stuff is still there. So uh, it's really important to, to start by acknowledging the ouch of whatever happened to you and offering yourself self-compassion. Because without that, it, it doesn't get what I would call metabolized or integrated enough so that we can move to the next step of forgiveness. I'd be curious to know what you think about that when we talk about it. The fourth idea that I had is to remember the law of conditionality. So the Buddha taught that all things are conditioned. Everything arises out of conditions, and these conditions come from previous causes. So he also said that we can't possibly know all of the causes that have led, the causes and conditions that have led to the present moment. We might know some of them, but we can't know all of them. So when we're hurt by someone or something happens that we hold resentment about, um, I find it easier 
to forgive or to lessen the resentment when I remember that I only know part of the story. I only know my story. I don't know, I know very little about what it was that came to condition the action that hurt me. So in my, in my own experience, I've been working with forgiving my father, uh, who I considered to be neglectful and in some cases abusive. And one of the things that has really helped me over the years, and especially lately with, with Google, <laughs> is to investigate and learn more about some of the suffering, some of the conditions that were present in his life, and the conditions that were present in his ancestors' and my ancestors' lives. Things that I really didn't learn about from him personally. So when, I, when I've learned about these things and I've reflected on them, I've been able to soften some of my resentment and have more compassion for him and for the conditioning that really uh, impeded his ability to show up as, as a parent. The, the fifth thing that I thought of and that others have thought of in terms of helping with forgiveness is a commitment to not add to harm. So while we may not be able to undo the past, the harm that's been done to us or to others, we can perhaps commit to not continuing that cycle of harm. And through that commitment, we can sometimes... Uh, come to a state of forgiveness. So I'll tell a story about that. So Katie Hutchinson is a Canadian, and uh, her son Bob was beaten to death in 1997 in a small town in British Columbia while he was checking on a party that was being thrown by a neighbor's son. And Katie's path towards forgiveness was to work towards repairing that harm rather than perpetuating it. And she did this by forgiving her husband's murderer, a young man named Ryan. And this is what she wrote. It comes from a book entitled The Forgiveness Project. Is anybody familiar with this? We'll talk a little bit more about this later. So this is Katie speaking. Forgiveness isn't easy. Taking tranquilizers and having someone look after your kids would probably be easier. But I felt compelled to do something with Bob's legacy. So Bob was her murdered husband. I wanted to tell my story to help change people's perceptions. And where possible, I wanted to do this with Ryan, her husband's murderer, by my side. I'll never understand how our universes collided, but they did. And as my husband Bob can't make further contributions to society, then perhaps Ryan can. Whether victim or perpetrator, part of being human is taking an active part in repairing harm. So in my own life, I had the opportunity to um, witness a similar commitment to not perpetuating harm. So about a year ago, I guess, I had the opportunity to meet with the fiancé of uh, Justine Ruchak, the woman who was shot and killed by Mohammed Noor. 
And uh, he wanted to talk with my son, Alex, who's a meditation teacher, um, to explore how mindfulness might help police officers think before they react, as Officer Noor had. And I was asked to come along, so I got to sit with this man. And what stays with me still, brings tears to my eyes, was just his profound commitment and his profound, it was a, such a sense of peace. I mean, he'd been through hell. But this commitment seemed to imbue him with this sense of peace and this, this deep, deep um, desire to not perpetuate harm, to practice non-harming. So I got to kind of feel that secondhand from someone who, who had embraced that commitment and through that commitment was working towards forgiveness. Another thing that I think can be helpful as we struggle or work towards forgiveness is sharing our stories. So sharing our stories with others, including with those who have hurt us and with those whom we might have hurt. Because when we share our stories, as these people share in this book that I referred to, um, it brings us out of this darkness of, and this isolation and perhaps shame and resentment that just allows it to fester. When we bring it into the light and share it with others, it can more easily be healed. So one of my favorite people, now recently deceased, um, was somebody named Bernie Glassman. Anybody know Bernie Glassman? Okay, so Bernie Glassman was uh, the founder of the Zen Peacemakers Order. And um, he, he had a practice which he called bearing witness. And he would go with other people and he would sit in places where there was suffering. And with his presence, he would bear witness to that suffering. And one of the things that he used to do was that he would take people to Auschwitz and they would sit in the camp. They'd actually sit on the tracks where the trains came bringing the Jews to the, the camp. And they would sit there and bear witness. And he would invite not only the children of Holocaust survivors, but he would also invite the children of those who were the SS, the people who worked in the camps. And he invited them to tell their stories and to bear witness to the suffering that had happened there. And he he wrote a book. He wrote more than one book. But the book in which he describes this is called Bearing Witness, A Zen Master's Lessons in Making Peace. I highly recommend it. So this is his story about one of these retreats. So they're in Auschwitz. The first evening was hard. No one wished to tell stories. I had seen this reluctance two years before on my first visit to Auschwitz. What I particularly remember was an encounter between the American-born son of a Jewish concentration camp inmate and the German daughter of the Nazi commandant of that same camp. For many years, the American had heard stories from his father about the brutality of the camp commandant, and coming face-to-face with the man's daughter in Auschwitz 
had been almost unbearable for him. He didn't want to meet or talk to her. He wanted to remain silent. But when the two finally talk and exchange stories, they discovered they had many things in common, including shame, guilt, and silence. Other participants began to tell their stories. Listening to the people speak, I was struck by the fact that through their family, that though their families had come from different sides of the conflict and their stories seemed so different, what many had in common was the secrecy surrounding the past. What they remembered most was the silence in their families about the war, about disappeared relatives and mysterious photographs. This was often accompanied by depression. In all cases, the discovery of the truth about their parents and their families, their coming to terms with their heritage, was a turning point in their lives. It not only put their family's past into perspective, it also radically affected their relationship with themselves, their spouses, and their children. So I think my story about my father and learning more about his past, which was a secret, and I also learned that my mother was a Jew, which was a secret, has helped me in some ways to come to terms with my own resentment and by sharing that story to to come out of that resentment and perhaps shame um, into a place of greater peace. So most of us probably will not have the opportunity to do something quite as dramatic as sit in Auschwitz. But we can look for other opportunities to share our stories, and there are so many. Um, I know short stories are shared here. Stories are shared in groups of trauma survivors and 12-step groups and restorative justice groups, in groups of friends. I would recommend that you find those groups and tell your stories because that is a really important part of forgiving ourselves and others. And the last thing that I would say, offer, just along the lines of things that are helpful for forgiving, is that um, the importance of forgiving yourself. And for most of us, I think that's the most difficult thing. So forgiveness, like all of the other Brahma Viharas, is an inside job. So we practice loving kindness not to change anything on the outside, although it might, but to actually to create a, a more loving heart. We practice compassion so that we can show up in the suffering of others. We may not be able to change the circumstances, but we can show up with an open heart. So all of them are about changing our own heart. And forgiveness is, is that as well. So forgiving ourselves includes forgiveness also for not being able to forgive. So we may not be there yet. And so one of the, the most helpful parts of the kind of the traditional forgiveness practice in Buddhism, in which we forgive other people, we forgive ourselves for having other, harmed other people, and then we forgive ourselves for having harmed ourselves, is the line that, and if I am not able to forgive now, then may I forgive myself in the future. So 
it's acknowledging the fact that we may not be there yet. We may not be able to forgive ourselves or others yet, but we're holding out the hope that sometime in the future we might be able to do so. So, um, I just want to say that I want to end by um, saying that there's so much hype and there are so many expectations and so much bad advice about forgiving. I hope I haven't contributed to that. Um, I may have. But, you know, you can read a lot of really harmful stuff about, well, just forgive, you know, and just do X, Y, and Z, and just open your heart to somebody who was really abusive or did something really awful, and just get over it, basically. And that's not helpful. And forgiveness is a lifetime process, maybe many lifetimes. It does not mean condoning harmful acts. It means seeing if we can open our hearts, our hearts, if we can let down the burden of carrying around these resentments and understanding that that these actions that people do are, while sometimes greatly harmful, and the actions themselves are not forgivable, the human being that did them is like all human beings. And so to look for the ways in where we can acknowledge this shared humanity and see if there's a place where we can begin to forgive the actor and not the act. Uh, Maria, what's her last name? Kanta, Kanta Casino, I guess is how she pronounces it, who is the, um, she's the leader of this forgiveness project, which is a British organization. Um, she collects these stories, so she believes in the power of stories, of people who have forgiven. These people have forgiven amazing things. So a Palestinian man who forgave the Israeli soldier who shot his daughter. Um, I already read the story of the woman who forgave the young man who killed her husband. These are extraordinary stories, and they're all different. And she writes in the introduction that she doesn't know, she doesn't, she doesn't have a formula, she doesn't have a definition, she doesn't even know what forgiveness is. All she knows is, is that she can tell these stories, and she hopes that people will find their own way in and tell their own story about forgiveness so that we can all benefit from that. She says, forgiveness means not allowing the pain of the past to dictate the path of the future. It requires a broad perspective, namely understanding that life is morally complicated, that people behave in despicable ways, and that some things can never be explained. And I think that's actually a pretty good definition of this vulnerability that we all experience. So I will ask your forgiveness uh, for any way that I may have hurt or harmed you intentionally or unintentionally in this talk. And um, because perhaps I have. And I would welcome your reflections and comments and feedback and your own stories of forgiveness. We have about 20 minutes till we need to end. <coughs> Robert. My name is Robert. And about the mid-90s, I was reading a daily meditation book. 
and in it had a quote or a story about a woman. Uh, and I'll just sum it up this way. It was a, a woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom. And the book that was she wrote or was written, yeah, that she, she wrote, it's called The uh, Hiding Place. And it's about the Holocaust. And she lived, I think, in Belgium at the time. And the short little piece for One Daily Meditation talked about how she, after the war was over, uh, she was teaching uh, or giving um, spiritual lessons, let's say. And um, someone came up to congratulate her. And she recognized that person as the guard in the concentration camp where she had been. And I fell off my chair. Anyway, she raises, she sees this, and I, my mind goes, whoosh, you know, zip, zip, zip. but she raises her hand, and she shakes his hand. I don't think she has a, I don't she tells him anything, but it was so poignant to me that she should come in contact with a guard in the very concentration camp that she was in. It was very powerful. And I got to buy the book at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Yeah. I have one other one that really affects me a lot, also in the 90s, um, when Mandela, Nelson Mandela of South Africa, was freed. And uh, not only freed, but becomes friends with the then president, of Africa, who was an Africana, meaning white, and um, their their friendship, as well as uh, what happens after that, the fact that African Americans, Africans, <laughs> for the first time, have the right to vote, and it's just such a powerful experience to have lived through. Of course, having President Obama as a president, a family, a black family in the White House. Unbelievable. And would you say that, that Mr. Mandela's um, commitment to establishing a relationship with de Klerk was an example of, not, of a commitment to not perpetuate the harm that had been done? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm John. Um, I really liked your talk. Great topic. Um, a couple things resonated with me. Uh, the first one was acknowledging the harm, you know, acknowledging the hurt. You know, starting with that. Um, but I really like the distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. I think that really frees one up to make some forward progress, you know. And finally, uh, in the tradition I practice, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, um, one of the principles um, that they zero in on, and the thing they, the one thing they zero in on is absolutely critical that you, re you address in recovery is resentment. It's funny, of all the things they could have zeroed in on, that's the one, resentment. And I think it's because resentment blocks us from growth. And forgiveness is a way of moving through that resentment. That's what I got. 
So hi, I'm Jenny. Um, I I want to tell you that this was a really, really profound uh, experience for me listening to your lessons today, and um, I uh, it's coming up on a time uh, annually that I really struggle with a friend's death, and. Um, Today I was driving by the area where he died, and I just, I um, have resentment for all of the people there, <laughs> and I didn't understand about this loss was about my vulnerability and actually recognizing how impermanent we are, and um so I, that's, I want to thank you for that because that piece I can focus on. I don't like to have resentment and I don't like to, I really value um, kindness and uh, a loving heart. So when I get into resentment like that, it really um, is hard for me. But what, the way you described today, uh, where it's coming from is really about impermanence. So thank you. Hi, I'm Robin. So um, I have a lot of anger and resentment um, in my life, but it's not about, it's not toward a person. It's toward uh, chronic illness, which affects me and my family. And um, I just struggle because uh, I don't want to hold on to these feelings because they're not helpful in any way. But um, I don't know who to, like, who to forgive. Like, what is to forgive when a chronic illness touches your life and um, the lives of your families and, you know, takes people from you? And I'm just open to hearing what you think or what others might think. Perhaps some forgiveness for yourself for being angry? Seems like a reasonable response if you're living with chronic illness to be angry sometimes. Are you able to forgive yourself for that? When I... Um, I've... I suppose, um, I think in my mind when I think of forgiveness, I think of somebody having done something wrong yeah. or harmful. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of forgiving myself, but I don't even know what that would look like or how that would feel. Or So someone, someone was mentioning, um, and I mentioned, first of all, the, the importance of really touching into the experience the vulnerability and the experience of what it's like to live a life with a chronic illness. So really feeling the pain and then everything else that comes up in response to that. You know, the, the anger, the resentment, allowing, allowing that to be present. And also offering yourself compassion for the fact that this is what you're experiencing. It doesn't feel good. I assume you don't you, I think you said resentment and anger. You didn't like the way that felt. Did you say that? No, that's not quite right. Yeah. So 
So to have some compassion for that, it doesn't feel good to feel resentment and anger. And yet it's there. And it'll be there until it's, the causes and conditions change. And so can you hold that with compassion and with love, love for yourself? Because that's what's there now. And perhaps that's what, again, it's, it's, it arises out of the causes and conditions. And so it's not personal. It's what's rising in response to what's there. And it hurts. So I would try just by, just, just by offering yourself some love and compassion. This hurts. This really hurts. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Kermit. Um, reflecting on this, I think, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the hard work of forgiveness, and I certainly don't want to minimize that, but on the other hand, forgiveness feels really good. And I'm sure everybody in that wrote, in that book there would attest to that, too. And you can't be happy without it. You just can't. Um, um, about a year and a half ago, somebody sold my daughter a, a lethal dose of fentanyl. And um, I had a list of names and numbers of dealers. And I thought it might be kind of a good idea to go buy a gun and, you know, shoot some of these people. Because the police weren't really very interested in doing anything about it. And um, But, you know, what... Um, what struck me, though, is the thing that you mentioned about conditionality. You know, I realized that whoever did this had all of the same causes and conditions that caused my daughter to become an addict and was probably just trying to support his or, his or her habit, you know, so. Uh, the, third, the third reflection I have, this is kind of going out of the tradition. This is a Tibetan thing, but... Their teaching is that if, if there's a difficult person in your life, you should revere that person as a holy guru, as a very valued teacher, because they're showing you where you're stuck on yourself. And there's, there's absolutely no enlightenment or spiritual growth or anything like that without difficult people. It's just, you just don't get it. So that's all I got. Thank you. Um, my comment is um, not totally about forgiveness, but since, so I wasn't sure if I, I was going to bring it up, but since you mentioned the last uh, piece uh, of reflection, I thought it is connected to that. Um, I have a person in my life that I feel like I label it abusive, but um, when I went to the retreat a month ago, within that quietness of the retreat, um, I'm looking at a couple of grasses standing different direction. 
and the wind comes. Some of them move, some don't. Then the ne next wind comes. The other ones that weren't moving this time are moving. And I'm like, why aren't they moving all together with that wind? So all of a sudden I remembered the reason this person looks abusive to me is because of the direction of the, just like the grass, the grass is very, having different direction. So some of them were moving with the wind in this direction, some of them were moving with the wind in that direction. So I realized the reason I am moving and looking at this person as an abusive person is my own disposition or conditioning. My sister or other persons in my life, they wouldn't consider this behavior abusive. So um, I'm interested in labeling things that are in my mind and the stories. Now I'm questioning those labels now. So when you question the original story, then there is less need to even forgive. Mm. You mm. see that you made that mm. up for yourself. So mm. that's how it kind of a little bit connects to forgiveness. Wow. And you learned that from the grass. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. I think we'll make this the last one. So, yeah. So my name's Rob. And I think it was two years ago that there was a forgiveness workshop here at Common Ground. Um, I took that opportunity to, like, kick the door open and really approach some of those difficult relationships in my life that I've neglected to approach uh, for, you know, like 50 years of my life. Um, and it was a starting point. Uh, your class that you have every month, uh, I've taken that opportunity. You know, I know frequently you say, you know, maybe you shouldn't start with a real difficult person. I dive right into the deep end of the pool because I'm ready for it. Um, to reiterate what Kermit was saying, I've found that the relief from putting down the weight of the resentment is the relief. It's relief. Um, yeah, I pick it up now and again and run with it just because. But in a general sense, it's not, it's not always on my back, you know, um, and uh, I credit the practice and teachers like yourself for allowing me to approach these relationships and, you know, look them in the face and deal with them. So anyways, with that, thank you. So Kevin, shall we do the closing thing? So before we do that, Kevin, Let's just dedicate the merit. Um, so if you're not familiar with this, it's just the practice of acknowledging that what we're doing here is wholesome and that there is merit or goodness that comes out of that that is not just for us. We do this for the welfare of all beings. So let's just take a moment and reflect on that.
dedicating whatever merit or whatever goodness, whatever wholesomeness comes from our practice and our exploration together, dedicating that to the well-being of all beings everywhere, animal beings, human beings, beings seen, beings unseen. May all beings everywhere be free from suffering. May all beings everywhere know the peace of forgiveness. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.